Hey everyone. So I was listening to one of my fellow philosophicasters, uh, Alexis Papazoglu, and his show is The Philosopher and the News, and it's associated with a philosophy magazine, The Philosopher. And he had an episode that really uh, struck a chord with me and I, I thought was really helpful and careful and uh, in, in thinking through the issues surrounding climate activism and in particular sort of what to do about activism around a global climate emergency when you're in a reasonably well-functioning liberal democracy and what sorts of limits one might place on oneself and, and, and who one's heroes might be. Are you going to go the route of uh, Dr. King and Gandhi or is is that approach going to be ineffective in some way or is there there's some reason why we might go a different approach, more of a like um, blockade sort of militant uh, approach. And uh, I just thought it, it raises lots of interesting questions, and in particular questions about the relationship between the the various sort of political lenses we can use to think about what to do about an emergency and to what extent should democracy like like little d democracy um, democratic values to what extent should those be part of our calculus and, and to what extent do we have to honor those when we're dealing with a, a global existential crisis like the climate emergency I think this is, you know, appropriate to put into the feed because I'm considering uh, transitioning more towards being a, a sort of philosophy and climate slash environmental philosophy podcast, um, and and having a, a sort of focus on topics that are related in some central way to the climate emergency and um, what to do in the next three decades about um, sort of solving this existential crisis we're facing. And um, I, so I think this is a, a, a great addition to the feed. And if you like this, then I, I highly recommend checking out The Philosopher and the News with Alexis Papazoglu, and um, I'll, I'll link to the page, uh, the, the podcast feed, in in the show notes so you can subscribe to it on your podcast app and um yeah thanks for listening insulate britain a new climate change campaign group has been blocking major motorways around london in recent weeks its demands are simple the uk government should fund the insulation of all social housing by 2025 as well as put forward a legally binding national plan for insulating all homes in Britain by 2030. As COP26 approaches the United Nations Climate Change Conference, there will no doubt be more climate activists taking to the streets. But is this form of civil disobedience an effective way to gain the public sympathy and bring about public policy change? Or are the role models of nonviolent resistance like Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi over-romanticized and impossible to emulate? Is more direct action, like the blowing up of a gas pipe, a more effective form of activism, one that gets to the point? Or is the contempt for liberal democracy and its processes that such acts imply a dangerous authoritarian streak that requires caution? Is it possible to respond to the climate emergency we are facing while upholding our loyalty to our sluggish democratic processes? Welcome to The Philosopher and the News. I'm Alexis Papazoglu.
This week, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Bill Scheuermann. He is the James Rudy Professor of Political Science at the University of Indiana, Bloomington, and works on modern political thought, German political thought, democratic theory, and international political theory. His most recent book is entitled Civil Disobedience, but I invited Bill to talk about a recent paper he wrote called Political Disobedience and the Climate Emergency, in which he expresses concerns about some aspects of climate activism, whilst at the same time being very sympathetic to its cause and efforts. I invited Bill to talk about those concerns and what should be done in the face of them. Bill Sherman, welcome to The Philosopher and the News. Well, thanks for having me. Looking forward to our conversation today. Me too. So now, as you say in your paper, that sort of COVID restrictions have been lifted um, and life is sort of beginning to get back to some kind of normality. Climate activism is also coming back. And here in the UK, as you might have heard, we recently had the appearance of a new group called Insulate Britain. Um, it's sort of a, a kind of branching off from... Um, Extinction Rebellion, and they've been blocking motorways and demanding that the EU government make some legal commitments to insulate uh, publicly owned housing and, and private housing as well. So this kind of activism would come under the first category that you discuss in your paper, political disobedience and the climate emergency. So this kind of activism is sort of nonviolent, uh, civil disobedience. Can you tell us a little bit about what the main features of this kind of activism are? Yeah, sure. I think this is probably what most of your listeners are most familiar with, right? So we're really talking about what we might call the standard civil disobedience playbook. Um, so the uh, act of illegality is politically motivated. It's supposed to be public. It's supposed to somehow um, show evidence of conscientiousness. It doesn't have to be religious, of course. It could be That could be understood in a secular way. It has to um, also evince fidelity to law, which is a fancy way of saying that even though one is committing an act of illegality, one is somehow showing respect for law, which, by the way, does not have to mean, of course, respect for existing law or existing legal systems. I mean, this could be – you get this in Gandhi and King. They took this very seriously, mm -hmm. but they thought of this in terms of anticipating the kind of legal order we want to have. So I think this is, you know, we, we're seeing quite a bit of this today in the context of climate activism. Yeah. And I, you know, insulate, that's a, I haven't followed this as closely as I wish I could. I realize it's also a new group. Um, this seems to be how they understand their actions. Now, one thing I didn't mention a moment ago when I just laid out these sort of standard criteria or standard characteristics is it's also quite common for people who advocate nonviolent civil disobedience to insist that the act of illegality should... Um, you know, should connect somehow to the injustice at hand, right? So this is why people talk about symbolic uh, law-breaking, right? So the law-breaking should somehow symbolize what mm -hmm. what one wants or what one, what, what one is worried about. And I don't want to comment on, you know, these specific tactics, but uh, just reading some of the media coverage, it looks like this is one of the things that does confuse at least some skeptical onlookers. They wonder how blocking a roadway, for example. I mean, so for example, blo blocking a, a gas pipeline, that's a pretty uh, straightforward way, right, to communicate what mm. you're worried about, or at least it's easier than to communicate your concerns about climate change. Blocking, blocking roadways, I think, has become a sort of generic tactic. It's being used, Black Lives Matter, you know, I know it was used in Hong Kong, pro-democracy activists, and, and I think sometimes it may be very sensible, um, but, you know, that is a question. Uh, you know, one has to worry about this this uh, illegal act somehow telling people in a straightforward way. Because it, and last thing I'll say, the crucial thing also about nonviolent civil disobedience, of course, um, is that you are trying you're trying to build public support. You're trying to speak to your political peers. Um, I won't say citizens because they're not just citizens, but we're speaking to political peers, and um, you know, and that's why doing these actions in a way that allows people to quickly understand what you're doing is crucial. But as you as you say in your paper, you know, a lot of people, uh, including yourself, who are concerned about climate change uh, are broadly sympathetic with some of these uh, acts of, of climate activists. You know, that we're, we're facing this kind of daunting environmental challenge. And as you say, you know, we can credit these people with pushing global warming's danger dangers front and center of the political debate. 
So, you know, they're doing something uh, that's that's important. But at the same time, despite being sympathetic yourself, you say you have a number of concerns when it comes to climate activism. And your first concern has to do with um, th- this this kind of model, the kind of civil disobedience, pa- uh, nonviolent disobedience. And one of the things that you bring up is that these people often uh, model themselves after very iconic uh, individuals in the past, people like Gandhi, people like Martin Luther King, and the idea is that these are these are figures that have some kind of broad social recognition. Um, their strategies seem to have worked in the past, and so you know, sort of hitching your bandwagon, as it were, to to political activists like like those uh, big names is a way to gain some kind of social recognition, social respect. You know, seeing. And seeing yourself and also sort of uh, projecting the image of yourself as following in the footsteps of these people. But at the same time, you you say there's a there's a big problem here. Can you tell us what, what that is? What is your worry? Well, I just want to make sure I'm as clear as possible. I, I admire what people are doing um, usually. And in fact, one reason why I wrote this paper is because I feel so guilty that I'm not out in the streets with many of these people. Just to be honest, this is why we end up doing intellectual work sometimes, right? So it's meant to be a sort of constructive conversation with the mm-hmm. activists. Um, but I also think it's our role as uh, you know scholars to engage constructively, but also critically, even with our friends and allies. So, you know, in general, I think this is just a wonderful development. And I think these various movements, so, you know, Extinction Rebellion here in the U.S., Sunrise, you know, um, they're very active on my campus and they're pushing, which is a big deal here in the Midwest. They're pushing for uh, the campus to divest itself of fossil fuels. Uh, we're, we're very close to coal country and, you know, using a lot of coal. So this is a big deal. Uh, This is wonderful. I'll just say that, right? So just, I have no qualms fundamentally about what's going on. So I guess my my concerns about nonviolent civil disobedience specifically in in terms of how it's playing out are twofold. Number one, um, I do think there's sometimes um, a certain naive view that um, it's a sort of political cure-all, you know, that if we just do this Mm. and we we whatever, block the highway, close down access to a building, you know, there's going to be dramatic policy change. Um, So I'm a political theorist. I'm also in a political science department. So I read social science for better or worse. And if you look at the social science and social movements, I mean, you know, there there are real reasons to be skeptical of this. So typically in the social science literature, people will say, I think correctly, um, civil disobedience is one among many tactics, you know, and one, the bottom line is one should not expect too much. Um, and I, you know, I don't think I'm just making this up. I, I, I was not expecting this, but digging around on some of the websites and publications of groups, including Extinction Rebellion, where I think you find these very strong claims about, you know, if we do this type of protest, we're going to get results. Uh, and that worries me because we're just going to end up disappointing these mostly young people who are going out there and, you know, for the first time in their lives or many young people um, getting involved. Um, I just don't think we should be naive about this. The second thing, this is also not a very creative argument, but um, it's made quite commonly in the literature. You know, I mean, yes, it's wonderful to be in the footsteps of Gandhi and King. We all want to do that. But this may also restrict our political imagination, at least to some extent. So um, we shouldn't forget how creative, how imaginative their protests were, how specific Mm -hmm. they were to certain places, certain times, right? And so we should not treat civil disobedience as kind of a a playbook that you kind of roll out and you just do, you know, oh, whatever. And again, there's a lot of social science. I mean, we we don't spend a lot of time talking about failed cases of civil disobedience. Those those aren't the ones, you know, we don't read about the failed Gandhis and the failed kings, right? They're not part of the nice history of this. Um, So on this point as well, I just think um, we need to be careful. So my, my concerns are actually, I would say, pretty modest at least in general terms. So so you mentioned that you read social science as a political theorist who finds himself in a political science department. But it seems like uh, a lot of these activists are also reading social science and it's not just the kind of historical, you know, memory or the, the sort of um, cultural memory of, of these figures that is informing their their actions. There are also, you know, reading some of the literature out there about civil dis- disruption and the effectiveness of of those methods. 
Um, but you also uh, point to the fact that some of that social science research seems questionable, or at least there's a, there's a question about whether it's relevant to the type of um, activism that is that is taking place. So the worry is that maybe people are over-interpreting the results of, of certain social science um, and thinking that their methods are a lot more effective than they, they actually are. So can, can you tell us a little bit about what is that social science that they're using and why is it um, that you think that it might not be as effective as, as they, they think they, it is? Yeah, happy to do that. Um, I mean, let me just preface my concerns again with a, a positive remark. I mean, I think it's wonderful that these movements are actually taking uh, real research seriously. I mean, we have a lot of movements mm-hmm. today I'd say mostly on the far right, um, as we know, which are engaging in all kinds of crazy stuff, right? I mean, their, their research is whatever crazy theory, um, you know, somebody, whatever, right? So, I, I mean, this is good uh, fundamentally, uh, but here's the worry. I mean, the worry is that um, we're seeing a somewhat selective, I would say, reified application of some social scientific results in a way that really doesn't do justice to political complexities. It's somehow anti-political. You know, so let me just give you one, well, one big example, and the example has a couple of elements to it. So uh, Extinction Rebellion, but also other groups, they often reference uh, on websites in published literature, some of the key figures like Roger Hallam, who's no longer involved with Extinction Rebellion, but he was. Um, he's a big fan of this. There's a book by Erica Chenoweth, Maria Stephan, 2011, mm-hmm. uh, Why Civil Resistance Works. Very influential book. It's been picked up. It's gotten lots of awards. And I'll just give you the quick version of the argument, and you can already then see why there may be some issues here in terms of applying the argument. So what they do is they go and they code all of these different uh, social movements. They determine or classify them either as being either nonviolent or violent. And then they show in a very rigorous social scientific way that overwhelmingly it's the nonviolent movements that have been successful. Uh, Successful at what? Successful at toppling authoritarian governments. That's primarily what they're interested in. Okay. Um, And again, you'll see this book reference and it's referenced in the context of saying, well, number one, this is why nonviolence is the way to go. It works. And then number two, um, there's an even more specific application of part of the argument. So Chenoweth has w- written an article which got a lot of attention where she claimed uh, – she calls it the 3.5% rule. If 3.5% of the population gets involved in, I think she says, peak political events, sort of massive protests, you know, that mm. typically goes along with um, political success. And by that, she typically means – uh, the fall of an authoritarian state. So some of the climate activists, you know, they've picked up on this and they're, and they're telling people, all, all we, you know, we're at 2.9, we got to get to 3.5 and then voila, we'll get what we want. Yeah. All right. And okay. So, I mean, you're, you're already beginning to see why this is a problem, but just to cut to the chase, um, number one, this literature is about authoritarian regimes. You know, it's not about climate change uh, policies in the context basically of more or less functioning liberal democracies. You know, there's a very interesting way, I think, in which some of these people, I think Hallam does this. Um, he, he conflates different meanings of revolution. You know, so the original literature is really about political revolution. And he wants, um, he seems to want something like that maybe, but he also wants, and I, and I agree with this, we want, a re- we want some fundamental structural changes to the fossil fuels economy, you know, but that's a different kind of revolution, right? Um, so anyhow, I don't, you know, I don't think that research speaks directly to the sorts of very specific problems we face or many of us face in countries which aren't, fortunately, uh, you know, authoritarian dictatorships, um, very different types of problems. The 3.5% mm. rule, a lot of empirical people have said, this is just, there's not a lot of support for this. It's very misleading. You know, so again, here's an example of how something that seems very hopeful and optimistic might actually lead to, um, you know, discouragement. There's also another problem, just very quickly. I mean, when they code violence and nonviolence, they put these movements in one of the other categories. And frankly, most many of these movements that Chenoweth and um, Stefan looked at, they involve some mix. You know, you'll have something we should talk about, property damage alongside of a principal commitment of no, to nonviolence vis-a-vis persons. And, you know, the original study doesn't really capture this. So I also don't think it's very helpful mm. in terms of 
dealing with some of the messier, yeah, messier questions. Yeah. One question I wanted to ask you on this is whether this is a sort of pessimistic reading, as it were, of that research. Someone might say, well, if 3.5 is enough to induce change in a, an authoritarian regime, you know, maybe maybe it will be easier in a democracy because in an authoritarian regime you have to, you know, deal with a, a, a government that is hostile and has, you know, the military behind it or the police behind it in ways that maybe in, in a democracy that's that's not the case. Um, so maybe is there a way of reading reading those results in a more optimistic way that you know if it, if only three five percent of people need to you know get on get on top of a um, a cause in a in such you know difficult circumstances like being in a dictatorship wouldn't it be easier in a democracy? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the, here's the we'd have to spend more time digging into the original argument to really explore this, unfortunately. Um, but you know, if you look at the original empirical work, a lot of the claims about mass mobilization they they really end up revolving around um, you know how the military is going to react. Uh, you know, is there going to be defection from the military? And indeed, large numbers on the streets play a positive role. You know, but again, that's not really what. We're, we're, what we're looking for, I just don't think the way to bring about climate change policy in the U.S. is for the, you know, the U.S. Army to say we're going to stop fighting. We're going to. I mean, I, that's just not. You know, so this is, there's a bit of a category mistake here. I mean, I, I I do think the general point that having mass mobilization, right, is a way to uh, push for change. Of course, that's right. You know. Um, but we shouldn't be naive. I mean, I, I just I've been reading also about Hong Kong and some of the journalists mm. writing about Hong Kong. I mean, it's really astounding. So at various points, pro-democracy protesters had a quarter of the population on the streets at various points, and we know what's happened. The result, you know, so again, we have to really we have to think politically, which means you take very seriously um, the importance of civil disobedience, mass mobilization, but you really have to think about. A variety of different tactics and how they might fit together, and that's going to vary from, you know, I think um, situation to situation. Yeah, on that on that point, I mean, to to sort of stick a little bit on this uh, on this question, is this a problem that all social science essentially faces when it comes to this? That you know, we can't really have laws of human behavior in the same way we have laws of human of uh, sorry of of nature. And so it's very hard to predict, you know, what the effects of um, activist actions will have in totally new contexts and in a totally with with a totally different agenda in place, right? So, you know, we we can we can talk about the effect that yeah, uh, protests or or non-violent uh, disobedience has had in context of authoritarian regimes we can look at i don't know past examples of the suffragettes and in all sorts of contexts but each each time it's going to be different so is it just impossible to make claims that sort of apply across time and space when it comes to whether activism of that kind will or won't have uh, an effect yeah well, my paycheck is paid by a social science department, so of course I have to push back a little bit on this. No, I mean, I, I, you know, fundamentally you're onto something, right? But I, I do think social science can help us identify certain regularities, right? You know, um, that are useful in, in terms of political action given certain conditions. But the problem with this specific case is, I think we're talking about, you know, fund a climate change, um, getting our governments to change their views, policies on climate change this is very different from bringing down. An authoritarian government. So I do think there are going to be some limitations, right? But you know, there there is there is certainly social scientific evidence that we can rely on it. If we don't, again, if we don't reify it, if we recognize um, certain, you know, acknowledge the particularity, as you're saying, of certain situations, how that may complicate things. But I don't think what I said, and maybe where you moved a moment ago. I mean, I don't. I, I think it's wrong to say every situation is different, right? So you know, the the problems facing climate activists in the US and the UK, they're different in some ways, but in some ways, I think very similar. So, and also, you know, historically we could complicate things. So uh, yes and no, there's my, that's my response, right? right? I do think the social science can help us. So you have to be careful not to draw 
not, not to think that all activism is the same, but also not to think that all activism yeah. is different. Yeah. And, and in terms of the evidence we have so far, what what is what what, what can we say about how much um, you know this kind of activism is changing the agenda? You know, um, you mentioned in your paper as well that you know a lot of the pessimism about this needs to be balanced with thinking that well these people have brought this in you know onto the agenda in a way that it wasn't before. We have you know people like Greta Thunberg and. Extinction Rebellion and all sorts of other activist organizations that you mentioned in your paper. So isn't the evidence so far that it's working or is is that a mis- misunderstanding? You know, again, I, th- I I very much admire what these movements have done, right? So I, I agree with you. I do think what has happened is um, quite remarkable. And, um, you know, I mean, even uh, here in the U.S. with our very, very flawed version of liberal democracy, right? Um in many ways, that, that might be another conversation. Um, you know, it, it's I, it's one should not forget that the moderate Joe Biden is now pushing for this a very aggressive climate change um, set of tri- climate change policy. He's not calling it the Green New Deal. He's smart enough politically because that has been mm-hmm. seized upon by people on the right to discredit policies. You know, and this didn't come out of you know, the blue. I mean, this is because of activism, um, and also I think people's real life experiences with dramatic of weather patterns and so on. So yes, I think you're right. I mean, I think, and there are reasons why, I mean, just to be very blunt here, I do think this old playbook model of civil disobedience remains very effective in part because it's so familiar to so many people, you know, and so it's a good, it doesn't scare people away. If you go to someone and say, look, we have to stop climate change, let's go and do some sabotage. My hunch is people will probably, most people walk the other way. If you say, well, you know, there's a protest and we're following the model of Gandhi and King, you're going to get a very different response. So this is a very, very effective way of raising public awareness. Uh, one thing I'll just say the paper addresses a bit is I found this very interesting because the, the general tendency in the philosophical literature has been to broaden um, the conception of civil disobedience to include many things that this traditional playbook model might have uh, derided as something else, said, oh, that's militant mm-hmm. something, you know, militant resistance. Um, or, right, so you either broaden the definition or you you start justifying, there's a great book. I mean, recommended Candace Delmas's book on uncivil disobedience. I mean, she comes up with a very sophisticated normative justification for civil disobedience that's not public, that may be destructive. I mean, the opposite of civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. You know, these are very good arguments. Um, but what I found really interesting is I, I think these activists, they, they you know, they're, they're sticking to the, the old and proven methods. And the fact that they have been successful in the ways you're talking about suggests to me that we might be more cautious than, um, you know, intellectuals, philosophers, and so on are always looking for novelty. That's what we have to do. And so maybe we're missing what's politically quite interesting, namely the fact that this old model has a kind of staying, staying power. There's a lot of evidence of that, I think. Thinking about the... Uh, this old playbook. Um, I was I was interested to to read in in your paper that uh, there's more to this nonviolence kind of aspect than maybe meets the eye. So so before we move on to this second main approach to activism, which is maybe more sort of on the um, as you say kind of sabotage kind of element and something that maybe scares people away because it sounds more violent or more um, more drastic. Uh, let's prod a bit this idea of non-violence and the, the extent to which um, this kind of activism is 100% non-violent or whether there are elements of violence that kind of creep in. So to begin with, you say that even, even under this framework uh, of non-violence, civil disobedience and, and those who practice it, they seem to allow certain forms of, for example, property destruction. Um, there are certain conditions that need to be fulfilled. You can't go willy-nilly, you know, breaking people's cars or houses, but they make certain qualifications and they say, well, when it's specific, when it's targeted, say, I don't know, attacking the headquarters of an oil company or a bank that heavily invests in fossil fuels, that's kind of game. That's, that's on the, that's allowed. And so that's one question, like, why does that sort of count um, under the, why is that under that umbrella? 
And then I wanted to bring up this this objection, which I've kind of heard banded about. I didn't know that it was first formulated by by Joseph Raz. I, I read that in your paper as well. Uh, who who puts this argument for that you know nonviolent civil disobedience can actually have real harmful consequences? And you know the classic example is something like. What if, you know, your your blockade prevents an ambulance from, you know, getting to hospital or getting to someone that's that's hurt? Or what if a fire, fire firefighter engine uh, isn't able to, you know, get to the fire in time and all that sort of stuff? So so without sort of being explicitly violent, your your actions might end up, you know, harming uh, others in, in ways that are, you know, quite palpable. Um, so what what is this conception of nonviolence that um, activists that operate in this tradition have, and how do they sort of make peace with these uh, these two kind of elements? Yeah, those are great questions. I mean, they're difficult questions, right? And they're difficult questions, um, I think, for a, a reason which um, is not going to surprise listeners, right? So both violence and nonviolence are essentially contestable term is there are very i mean very different ways unavoidably of defining them it seems to me right um, their very nature calls out for a contestation disagreement so i mean i just was looking around and i recall that the oed definition of violence by the way um, which i think is quite interesting because i think this is the standard one people work with it's ba- it basically it includes violence against persons and property you know so it's very broad that's what you often also hear in the media Right, so you hear about violent protests, and um, if you look at what actually happened, a lot of the violence may be uh, property damage, looting, okay, but not necessarily, um, you know, attacks on police officers. Um, so I, I guess I just um, I do find it interesting, and the paper talks about this that you do see uh, even those committed to nonviolent civil disobedience, they do allow for property damage. The argument seems to be that if you do this as you know, in a, in a symbolically significant way, again, in a way that's going to have a kind of deliberative or communicative impact, right? This is a way to make, tell people something that you want them to hear, you know, then this might be acceptable, okay? Um, you know, that's, that is a, a plausible argument. Um, I, I would just say more generally, I, I, I just don't buy this broad definition. I think we have to distinguish and a lot of people have said this, we have to distinguish violence versus persons from violence versus things. You know, violence, when you smash, stare down a, tear, uh, tear down a statue, smash a window, that's not the same thing as, you know, beating somebody up or, uh, you know, violating them uh, in bodily intrusive ways and that are psychologically traumatic, that leaves obvious damage. I mean, these are really two different Phenomenon. I just think the conventional language here is very misleading, you know. And to the credit of the protesters, um, I mean, I was actually very impressed. I mean, a lot of the discussions in the literature end up being about this matter, and they make some very nuanced um, distinctions that one often doesn't find in the academic literature, you know. So Mm -hmm. I do think we have to distinguish these two different. I'm not even sure we should call property damage violence. It seems to me that's, you know, there may be historical reasons for calling it that, but I don't, I just, I mean, and and it gets more complicated, right? So uh, there are some forms of property damage. So if I own a little shop and it's vandalized and I can't feed my family, you know, you can see there's a connection there between property damage and violence in the strict sense. But there's a lot of property damage that doesn't take that, take that form. I mean, even these liberal theorists in the 60s, they, they, you know, so I think it's, it's Mitchell Cohen who at some point says, well, you know, if you, um, engage in the destruction of some public property, nobody's really hurt, and you're using this to make a message, that could be civil disobedience. You know, so there's a long-standing mm-hmm. debate about this. The Ross mm-hmm. point gets a lot of mileage in the debate. Um, I'm glad you mentioned it. I guess I, I've never been, you know, I'm not supposed to say this because he's such an important figure, and this is always cited, therefore I mentioned it as well. I just have not always been that taken by it, you know, and here's why. Mm-hmm. I think um, at least for somebody like Gandhi or King, you know, if a nonviolent protesters blocked an ambulance, this is the example, and caused immediate harm, I mean, they would have said this isn't nonviolent. You know, they, I, I just think what he's describing are forms of protest, which many people would just say are problematic from the perspective of, not, you know, some notion of nonviolence. Also, some of the examples he has, I'll just mention when he talks about this, are of violent protest. And I think one of them is, is, is Stalinist labor camps, you know? And I just don't think that's a very good example 
to be used against defenders of nonviolent civil disobedience because many, not all of them, but many of the people who defend it, John Rawls, for example, important defender of it, right? He says, you know, nonviolent civil disobedience is appropriate to a nearly just liberal order. When you're talking about an authoritarian state, you can do some very messy, nasty things. You know, so I don't think Rawls would have, for example, been opposed to more militant, violent action in those contexts. So I, th- I think, you know, I, I appreciate I appreciate the point. I think it is helpful for us to think through what we what what we think about these big issues. But I, I don't. I personally don't think we should make too much of it. You know, there is a big issue of, you know, indirect. Let's say direct versus indirect harm. You know, and that, and that's right. complicated. Right. So the, to the extent that the the Ra's argument speaks to that, you know, that but but my sense is most defenders of nonviolent civil disobedience have just and they continue to say this. We need to minimize as much as we realistically can. You know, nobody can ever fully predict what the impact of their action is going to be. But as much as we can, we should minimize those sorts of uh, avoidable harms. You know, so that that's maybe the best answer. Mm. So they do take they basically what you're saying is they do take these objections into account and they they don't just brush it aside as it were they do they do kind of um, take take care to avoid such harms so one one final point maybe we should discuss about uh, this type of um, activism and something that you bring up in your paper is that what we find in in the literature and the discussion of a lot of these organizations, including Extinction Rebellion, is this idea that you know our politics, as they are at the moment, are just kind of like in, incapable of dealing with this, and that if we want to solve climate change, or not solve it, but at least you know minimize the the effects of it, we need to go beyond politics. Uh, this is a phrase that's used you know, reject, they, they sort of tend to reject partisan politics, existing parties and the kind of political institutions and the old, the old the structure that we have in liberal democracies. And the noises are often made towards a kind of more participatory, direct democracy. Uh, there's talk of revolutionary assemblies, uh, assemblies that are selected by lot rather than uh, by votes. So, th- And as you say, this is, again, very sort of on the money in terms of the latest literature coming out of a lot of political theory and discussions around, you know, are there better versions of democracy and how can we, how can we achieve them? How can we get to them? Um, so, again, though, you, you seem to think, well, but maybe there's a kind of misappropriation here of, of some of this research when, when thinking about applying it to climate activism. Can you talk us through yeah. some of your worries here? So I think one has to sort out these different questions, right? So I don't think I, I don't think there's any question. I mean, I'll just say this very dogmatically, right? That our, our political systems, um, liberal democratic systems or otherwise, they're, they're not responding to this crisis. And that should worry all of us, you know? And there are different reasons for this in different contexts. But, you know, um, these activists do a very nice job sort of laying out some of the main reasons Right. I mean, one of them is just uh, – so even if you assume the system is working more or less the way it should, democracy takes a long time. I mean, it's about compromises. It's about deliberation. And this climate crisis – it is a climate crisis – is unfolding very rapidly. You know, So we have a sort of temporal misfit. I mean, this is one of the arguments I find absolutely convincing, and I think we will need to talk about this. You know, So that's one of the claims. Um, and so there are very legitimate claims about the failures of our political systems, okay? And so one of the consequences of those claims is a push for sort of deliberative assemblies that will be um, selected by lot. So Extinction Rebellion has pushed for this quite aggressively. It's still, I was looking again, I mean, it's still on their website, one of their demands. You know, we want um, these assemblies to be established and then we want parliament to be led by them. I mean, it's a little ambiguous in terms of what that means. Um, I mentioned this fellow Hollum before. Um, he goes a lot further. I mean, he actually – he's very unambiguous about this. He wants these assemblies to essentially have something uh, along the lines of sort of revolutionary constituent power to reestablish the basic political rules of the game you know, and also to do all the things we need in order to cha- deal with climate change. All right? Now, so what are we – what? is to be said about this. Lots of things. I mean, first of all, there are some, I would just say some 
fundamental questions of democratic theory, right? Uh, you know, uh, why assume that these uh, deliberative assemblies chosen by lot, why are they more legitimate than even our flawed representative institutions? You know, at least with the flawed representative institutions, in principle, we can get throw the bums out. For example, I mean, right? We can we can get rid of them. Um, this. You know, so there's a lot, and there's a very complicated debate about this. And here again, this is an example where I think some of the activists have have picked up on the debate, which is great, but they're maybe applying it in a way that is a little too heavy-handed. The other concern I would have, um, it's a more practical one. There seems to be an assumption that these assemblies by lot, you know, that they're going to these people are going to come to the right conclusions <laughs> about climate change, meeting the ones right. that the activists want. Right. And I, I just find that to be very unrealistic. You know, it just seems to me, I mean, so let me just make a more general and maybe more constructive point. One thing I'm, I'm happy to see. So I just was looking again. I see Extinction Rebellion is now pushing in a very direct way for specific legislation. They've signed off with other groups that are pushing for, I think it's called the Climate um, Emergency Act, which would require parliament, you know, your government to do all sorts of things it's not doing. You know, that that old-fashioned sort of approach seems to me uh, in some ways maybe uh, a more effective, uh, however boring it seems, you know, more effective way of, of pushing for what you want versus pushing for assemblies where you assume somehow people are going to do what you want. Um, and which may have very questionable legitimacy, and which, you know, frankly, whose whose outcomes may not be broadly accepted as a result, you know. So yeah, I think there are some uh, some really difficult issues here. Um, the citizens' assembly thing seems to be—it's not just extinction rebellion. I've seen some other groups now talking about this, and I do think there's a role for them, but probably um, a role in terms of political mobilization as a way of keeping people involved and also perhaps as a way of sort of percolating ideas up, which, yes, I mean, we want our politicians to pay attention to them. Um, but I don't think at all we should see these citizen assemblies as replacements um, for, I think that's just a, um, and, I, and, I, and I'm not someone who's naive about our existing institutions, but I, I do think that there's some real, there are some real questions there that make that very troublesome, I yeah. think. Yeah, I mean, I, this is a, I guess, a, something that just popped into my mind now as we're talking. But if time is an issue, right, and, and we've agreed that our our political system is is quite slow, but changing your political system in the middle of a crisis, right. trying to create a new one with new institutions, and you know, obviously they're not going to all work uh, smoothly at first, and you know, it, it seems like that would also just just from a very pragmatic, practical you know, uh, concern. It would also take forever to get off the ground and get working uh, and get some of those decisions that are made to be executed and so on and so forth. So uh, I take your point. And, um, and one of the other objections that you mentioned and that's something that's, that's brought up when people talk about these types of assemblies is that you know, who sets the agenda as it were. So it's fine to get people selected by lot and, you know, have them discuss the various issues. But what are the issues and, you know, who who chooses those? And those are, I guess, more pressing questions in, in the context of democracies. Okay, I think we're, we're going to come back to some of these uh, worries when talking about this next uh, kind of category of activism and what you call block and disrupt. And they take a very different approach and, you know, they, they put forward things like sabotage and property damage, uh, famously blocking and damaging pipelines or oil pipelines, attack, attacking mining and petroleum operations. So they clearly have a very different uh, and a lot more comfortable approach to the use of violence, although, as you say, again, not necessarily towards individuals, but towards property. Um so what are the main what are the main ideological differences between this approach and the nonviolent civil disobedience activists apart from this kind of different attitude towards towards violence? Yeah, well I, I spent some time trying to puzzle this out because I, I mean what I found very difficult um was just seeing how you have all kinds of different types of activists, right? So you have green resistors. There are some types of sort of environmental Marxists, I would say. People call themselves revolutionary environmentalists, anarchists. 
you know, and um, so there's all kinds of deep ideological differences among people who participate in what I'm calling block and disrupt or what Naomi Klein is called blockadia, which I think is a very nice way to capture this. There's a culture of blockadia that one sees among these activists. Um, you know, and I, I, after digging around a bit, I decided there is a sort of common strategy. I mean, of course, there are some differences between and among these groups, right? But the common strategy is to say, we do not have time, uh, not just for normal legislative governmental mechanisms. We don't have time even for, for nonviolent civil disobedience either. That's time consuming. It means building uh, broad-based democratic movements, you know, and they often don't work. So we need to act, right? So this becomes a call for a kind of sabotage that is focused on, on as quickly as possible, closing down the sources of, you know, of, of global warming, basically. And I have to say, given the crisis at hand, of course, this approach has an appeal. I worry that if our governments, including my government, fail to act, and I'm worried about what's happening in the U.S. right now, um, you know, this is going to become even more appealing than it is because you can see why. I mean, we, do, we just – we do not have time. Um, so, you know, what is the difference vis-a-vis nonviolent civil disobedience? Well, number one – uh, many of those engaging in block, what I call block and disrupt, they see nonviolent civil disobedience as being time-consuming. They see it as being moralistic. This is a sort of critique of the moralism, and they often these folks often don't like Gandhi. They'll say it's time to move beyond that stuff. It doesn't really work, right? They're much more secular. Uh, we need to be political, and that means being militant in some sense. And um, yeah, we need to act now. We can't we can't wait around. These activists are less concerned really with their actions in terms of building movements. You know, they, they of course want to have a movement, but they're not really fundamentally interested in um, speaking to political peers to bring them over to their side. They're, they're often very hard-headed. You know, they'll say, all we need is a small group, a kind of avant-garde that can pull this off, and then we can close down the fossil fuel economy. So I think this is a very, very different kind of strategy, and it's mm. appealing. I do think there are a lot of, just to be clear, I do th- these terms I use, nonviolent civil disobedience and block and disrupt, they're sort of ideal types. So I think if you bumped into your ordinary climate activists, a lot of them would have both things sort of in their heads at times. And I, I right. appreciate that, right? But I do think this is a very different, very different kind of approach. And it's not, you know, it's it seems to me that it doesn't really um, ultimately take democracy as seriously as we need to take democracy. And I mean by that, I mean say democratic, I'm talking about now democracy in terms of social movements. I'm not talking about existing political systems per se, right? I mean, the, the democratic nature of social movements is crucial if, if they're going to bring about lasting change. And that gets pushed to the wayside. Uh, to, mm, that gets sidelined yeah. here. We'll get to that in a second. I just want to press a little bit on the on the differences between the two two types of activists. You say you know there are deal types, and of course most people will sort of um, have a version of both of them, maybe that they that they adhere to. But you you said something interesting about the sort of block and disrupt people being a, being more secular and and seeing the nonviolent disobedience, civil disobedience folk being still sort of maybe influenced by sort of religious ideas about sort of uh, sacrifice, self-sacrifice, kind of martyrdom. If, if you only, you know, turn your turn the other cheek and, and, and get the full power of the state, you know, crushing on you and, and people see that, they will, they will realize that your cause is just and, you know, come behind you and all sorts of things. So is this, do you think this is, there's something more to this? Can we talk about the one movement being sort of more religiously inspired and the other one being more secular, one being more idealistic maybe, and the other one being more hard-nosed realist thinking, you know, politics is a, is a dirty job and you're not going to make, you're not going to do anything by, you know, playing nice. Yeah, well, I, I would say what I see with nonviolent civil disobedience in terms of climate activists, I, I don't think people are necessarily more religious, but they do take this idea that civil disobedience involves some expression of, of moral conscience very seriously, and that can take a religious form, right? So they see themselves as engaging in, um, you know, what they're doing. It's a moral action. It's a moral imperative. And yes, that 
also then means that perhaps accepting punishment as a kind of moral sacrifice. I mean, this is important to some of these groups, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that is that is not really the case to the same extent or perhaps at all for um, some of the block and disrupt groups. I mean, they also see themselves as doing what they're doing as in some level moral. It's normatively required, but they don't like this uh, older language of morality or of conscience, right? And so, yes, they they often see themselves, you know, and they, I'll just say they, they do make some good points that one has to think through. I mean, so for example, um, you know, I have mixed feelings about this, but it, it is it is not always the case that self-sacrificial, the self-sacrificial acceptance of legal penalties persuades people. You know, it has at certain junctures. Um, Gandhi did this very well, you know, and King sometimes, um, but it doesn't always work, you know, and as some of the hard-headed block and disrupt people will say, sometimes it just means people get thrown in jail and you never hear about them again, you know, and that's also true. So, um, you know, this is an old debate, really. I mean, Gandhi, he's, I mean, really, I, I teach him and uh, enjoy that in this course in modern political thought. I end up with his critique of the Western tradition, you know, but one of the things he he thought he was a better revolutionary than Lenin. You know, he thought Lenin was the weak revolutionary, right? So he pushes back against, I mean, there's a sort of old debate here about violence as allegedly being stronger and more macho, right? Versus mm -hmm. um, people like Gandhi and King who are, who are challenging that. Um, and I, I'll just say, I think that debate resurfaces here. Uh, it, and it, you know, obviously it's a, it's, it's a tough call in many ways. Um, I do, you know, I do think the block and disrupt activists are realist in a way that I do not like. I mean, I think they are realist in the sense of, in, in terms of their democratic theory, they're often very disdainful uh, in some of the writings that I, I cite in this paper of ordinary citizens' capacities to figure out what they should do. So one of the reasons they think an avant-garde is the way to go is, you know, they say, we're, we're never going to build a, a, a broad base of support because basically people are either too ignorant or they've been bought off. So it's only the small band of heroic actors who somehow see the truth. I mean, there's a kind of, you know, avant-garde-ism uh, here. Um, yeah, yeah. such a narcissism as well, perhaps, yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, that's right. So, so yeah. So the critique, as it were, of liberal democracy almost moves towards the sort of space of contempt towards towards liberal democracy, not not just sort of a kind of a well-meaning or um, well-intentioned critique. One of the one of the main things that worries you when it comes to all this language is that even though we recognise that we are in a crisis, as you say, or we are in an emergency. This language is also kind of politically dangerous at the same time. So especially when it comes to the block and disrupt folk, they take this idea of emergency very seriously, more seriously maybe than the nonviolent civil disobedience activists. And they see, as you say, liberal democracy and its institutions, you know, at best too slow to be able to step in. But at, what they really think is that it's it's corrupt, it's beholden to interest groups, People are ignorant. People are not going are lazy. They're not going to do what needs to be done. And the worry is that we have a sort of history of the politics of emergency, and we know that it can be a kind of slippery slope to beginning to circumvent democratic processes when it comes to decision making, giving a lot of power to unelected individuals, or giving a lot of power to the executive branch of government and totally bypassing the legislative branch or, or or the courts even. And, you know, the idea is that, you know, if only the right people have the power, this will be solved. But there's a there's a worry that this will this will end up in in a kind of authoritarianism of of sorts. And I kind of hear that argument on your side. And I hear that worry. My question is, I guess, and maybe you want to elaborate on that more than than I did. But a question is: is this is this um, a, a sort of exaggerated worry at this stage? At the moment, we're talking about you know tiny groups of people who you know don't really have many resources at their hands. They can manage to you know blow up a pipe here and there and manage to act covertly 
you know, under undercover in, in distant locations. But, you know, if it really came to it, they wouldn't really be able to fight against the government and the states and democratic uh, and democratic uh, countries. So is this worry exaggerated or or should we really take it seriously? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I do think it's um, exaggerated. So I, didn't, I, I don't mean to suggest that block and disrupt uh, poses a sort of existential threat to existing democracy. I mean, well, there is an authoritarian threat out there, but it's not coming from them. I mean, we, had, we, we just saw this in the United States, and I think it's still looming on the horizon in the United States, unfortunately. So, um, but no, you're right. These are sm- so I don't, I, I don't see that. But what I, what I meant to say is um, this style of politics is authoritarian. You know, it's not, again, it's not um, the preference for an avant garde, you know, the, I think the implicit or explicit disdain for building democratic mass movements, um, property damage, not as a way as of speaking to fellow citizens, but as a way of allegedly, you know, that, that for me is sort of a, a science fiction part of the story. Somehow, if mm. the argument goes, we can identify the right weaknesses in the fossil fuel grid, we can just close the whole damn thing down. I mean, I, I, I just... I'm not an engineer, but uh, this just seems a little bit too good to be true or too – I mean, I just can't believe that, right? So, um, you know, that that's – it's an authoritarian style of politics that I worry about. Now, now where I think there is an authoritarian logic potentially, and I have, I'll just say I have very, very ambivalent feelings about this, um, is the, the term I, – I do think we're, we're in a climate emergency, you know, uh, I said this before. So what's an emergency? Well, we can talk about that. But I think I would say we're talking about dramatic or fast-moving developments um, with uh, potentially massively negative existential ramifications, something like that. That's a quick definition. Right. You know, right. so I mean, th- this is a this is as dangerous as a war, right? Um, so that's an emergency. Now, uh, so fine. I think we should agree about that. But what that? But we we know when this gets translated into the language, as you were saying, right, of politics of law, and law, things get more complicated. So this type of uh, rhetoric often serves the executive. Um, the executive, of course, is the allegedly the best emergency actor. That's a an old idea, and it's still there. And um, you know, so yes, this is this is very difficult because if you are committed as I am, and I would expect most of you listeners to some form of self-government, you know, climate emergency may seem appealing as a way of raising consciousness about these issues, but that's probably not what we want. We don't want a, a an executive-centered solution to these problems. Now, here's why I'm ambivalent. If I could just say, I do think like in the US, um, our political system is a mess. It's just a mess. All right. We have a we call it the Senate. It's it's your it's the House of Lords um, with rotten boroughs, right? We have states mm-hmm. with five hundred thousand people of two representatives, California with forty five million two. I mean, it's just insane. It is so deeply undemocratic, and um, it happened during the Obama administration. Very important climate reform legislation. It's an energy bill, I think it was called, um, but it was about climate change. It was stymied in the Senate. Even though the Democrats um, actually had a majority, if I recall correctly, it was stopped with the filibuster. And um, even though it was a small majority, if you look at the states they represent, the, the populations are vastly more numerous than the Republican senator states, right? So we had a majority, mm. arguably, in support of this, at least in some measure. You know, we're facing that situation again, where this very important legislation is being stymied by. Uh, an institution which I think poses increasingly, the U.S. Senate, it poses a threat not just to progress in the U.S., but to the extent that the U.S. is crucial to dealing with climate problems. I mean, this is an existential problem for a lot of people, not just for me, unfortunately, right, for others as well. Our Supreme Court is a disaster, you know, so I do think one could make a pragmatic argument for, particularly given the particulars of our system, for Joe Biden declaring some sort of climate emergency and then using the full range of legal emergency power he has to begin initiating these changes and then to have a political battle about that. Now, I'm, I, yeah. now here's the problem. I'm very uncomfortable with this as a small D Democrat for obvious reasons, mm. but I'm also mm. someone who recognizes that there are emergencies, right? So, you know, during wartime, uh, we have seen, um, you know, I mean, the response in the UK, the US to Nazism was oh, not always uh, 
stellar in democratic terms. Perhaps it was necessary. So maybe the climate change, you know, I think there has to be a serious discussion about that. You know, this is where it gets very messy politically. Yeah, and this is kind of where I wanted to end, which is that given given these um, tensions, right, given that on the one hand we recognize uh, that this is an emergency, something needs to be done, we recognize that our political system is probably not fully equipped with dealing with it and at least hasn't shown signs of being able to deal with it so far. But at the same time, you know, you offer a compelling critique of some of the problems that come with these alternatives, uh, these forms of activism. So where does this leave us? <laughs> Philosophers are often yeah. accused of, you know, being good critics, but right. being less good at putting forward um, alternatives and ideas that will replace the problematic uh, practices or the problematic uh, mindsets. So what should we do? What's, yeah. do, do you have any any um, sort of positive um, suggestions? Yeah, well I, well, I do think nonviolent civil disobedience should continue doing what they're doing. I think this is has been successful. I think if they continue to act creatively, it, it can continue to be successful. And as I think the climate crisis worsens, people are going to start paying more attention. You know, um, I also think the block and disrupt activists, I mean, if they – can think about what they're doing perhaps as something that might constructively contribute to um, political reform. You know, so in other words, if they were to think about some of these acts of property damage as building a broader movement, that that could be a very useful thing. I think some of them do that already. I just don't think at least um, some of the theoreticians, if you will, of this tendency have, are not always doing that. But I think some of the activists are, are thinking in those terms. Um, and then, yes, I think you have, you know, the, the sort of argument I just made. I think those arguments are going to depend on you, on the political context that people find themselves in, you know. So I do think politics often involves tragic choices, right? Um, sorry, I mean, that's not a, I, I, that's an old fogey kind of remark and it's not, uh, but yes, you know, so a tragic choice might be that one supports when, when, when this bill, is, I hope this doesn't happen, but there's a good chance that the senator from coal country, Joe Manchin, um, and perhaps also the senator from Arizona, which I, I just learned, I didn't know this. I mean, Arizona should be a center for solar power, but apparently they rely also on coal uh, to a great extent. Um, you know, if they manage to stop this climate change bill, there, there should be in this country a conversation about, okay, what can, what can Biden do using his existing power as president to sort of get the ball rolling. It is an emergency. Now, I think you're going to have a very different conversation. People are going to have a different conversation in the UK, different conversation in you know, Germany. I follow the news there a bit, um, but that may be the American conversation. And yes, and it may involve you know, um, both endorsing those sorts of things, but also trying to make sure that they are legitimate ultimately. And that's complicated. So I, I do think you know, there, are, there are ways in which I, I did not want my paper to be what I said at the beginning of our conversation. I was hoping this would be a constructive conversation. I, I shared it with a few colleagues who said, "Well, you need to be more critical because that's what we do for a living." And I said, "Well, I, I want to, you know, I'm hoping some people will actually read this and talk, think about this. I don't want to put them off, right?" So, um, but you're right. I mean, we have to say something that's that's constructive. Mm. I sort of take also what you said early in our conversation about the role of imagination here, that maybe we need to imagine new solutions that we haven't thought about yet. And, you know, just relying on old models of either government or or civil action isn't going to cut it. And we're just going to have to come up with new ways, uh, imagine new ways forward, uh, even if it seems sort of impossible at the moment. So uh, you've already mentioned uh, a book that sort of changes the discussion around uh, the nature of civil disobedience. Is there a book that you'd recommend to listeners on the issues that we've been discussing today to do with the sort of potential force and the potential peril of um, activism when it comes to issues like climate change? Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's difficult because I think what's happening is unfolding very quickly and it's relatively novel. And this is actually one reason why I wanted to, I decided to write the paper. Uh, I just, 
you know, I thought it might be useful to sort of bring these different tendencies, describe these different tendencies, you know, but there are some really, I'd say some very specialized books. So there's a book, um, Jeremy Brescher, who's a long time activist in the US, his book is called Climate Insurgency. And I think he lays out a very nice case for um, some of the things that I've been talking about. He doesn't make the distinctions that I make, you know, but that's a, a nice accessible sort of argument. If you're Another book which I, I found, found enormously interesting and provocative, um, and frankly is the reason is really what got me going with this is um, by a Swedish Marxist, a guy named Andreas Malm, "How to Blow Up a Pipeline," mm. and it's a terrible mm. title because it's not a handbook, you know, mm. but it's basically uh, an argument in favor. It's a it, it's a it's a critique of nonviolent civil disobedience and and a defense of a kind of block and disrupt. I mean, I think the book has some real problems, but I found it to be very, very impressive. And he's actually engaged with a lot of these sorts of um, arguments about civil disobedience. So that's a very good book. You know, um, and there's a, crit- a very critical book on Extinction Rebellion, which may be of value to listeners in the UK. Um, Oscar Berglund and Daniel Schmidt, Extinction Rebellion and Cli- Ex- Extinction Rebellion, excuse me, and Climate Change Activism, where um, I mean, some of it may already be out of date because I think Extinction Rebellion, to its credit, is constantly sort of evolving and adapting. But um, some very perceptive issues, uh, you know, also along the lines of some of the things I was talking about, you know, how the social science that's being used is sometimes very problematic. I mean, so those, you know, I know people aren't going to go and read these three books, but maybe one of them will be of use to some of your listeners. Bill Sherman, thank you very much. Thank you. Very much enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Philosopher in the News. As always, this podcast is created in partnership with The Philosopher, the UK's longest-running public philosophy journal. If you're enjoying listening to the podcast, I have a favour to ask you, as always please click on the Apple Podcasts link in the show notes and leave us a rating and a review. I do enjoy hearing from you, but it also is the main way that others can find the podcast. I'm Alexis Papazoglu, and this was The Philosopher in the News. Speak again soon.